Hear the word of the Lord from John 15, 18 through 16, 4. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now that they have no excuse <clears throat> but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me. From the beginning, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you re may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I am the lead pastor here at the church. If you are just joining us, we are working our way verse by verse through the entire book of the Bible called John. John, or the Gospel of John, as it is often called, is a first-person eyewitness account to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It's one of the best places to go if you want to know and understand who Jesus is, what he taught, and what he did. Today, we are obviously studying chapters 15, uh, verses 18 through 16, verse 4, as you heard read this morning, and it is a section of scripture that should stop us dead in our tracks. Jesus has done ministry for approximately three years. His ministry has consisted of preaching and teaching, healing the sick, forgiving sins, raising the dead. He was known by all who saw him as a doer of miraculous deeds and an authoritative teacher who possessed unrivaled wisdom and power. And yet, Jesus was hated by many, mainly because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Now, why would that bug so many people? Well, it should be kind of obvious. When someone teaches, we want to listen and evaluate what is being taught. Most of the time, we feel ourselves totally free to agree or disagree. Right? Well, that sense of neutrality just gets totally thrown out of the window when the teacher claims to be the son of God. See, most teachers say things like, well, this is the right answer, experts say. This, this is the way that you should go, most people believe. See, and what are we to do? As listeners, we are to evaluate their claims and choose for ourselves what to believe. Maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. 
Maybe that's just their opinion, and we've got a different opinion. We say things today like, well, that's your truth. I hear it, and that's good for you, but I disagree. I have my own truth. And in walks Jesus, and he stands up and says to every single human being, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to God the Father unless they come through me. See, Jesus, as he claimed to be the Son of God, he is claiming to be capital T truth. That means truth that comes from outside of our world that stands over our world and judges our world. And he says that the only way to be forgiven of our many sins and to know God rightly and to gain eternal life with God in heaven is to come through him. See, this is what ultimately gets Jesus crucified. The Jewish religious leaders of that day hate him because he claims to be one with God and he claims to have a truth that is over what they perceive to be true. And then in chapter 18 of John, Jesus will be standing before Pilate, a pagan king, the, or the governor of Judea, who alone has the power to crucify him. See, the Jew- Jewish leaders want Jesus dead, but they were under Roman authority, so only Pilate actually had the power to determine if he could be legally crucified. And when Jesus is standing before Pilate, what does Pilate say to him? Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says to Pilate, you say that I am king. For this purpose, here's Jesus, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. He says, Jesus goes on, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is saying, I am not from this world. I have come from another world. I have come from heaven. And heaven is the control room of the universe. Heaven is where truth comes from. Heaven stands over and above this world. And then what does Pilate say in response to Jesus' absolute truth claims? Pilate says, what is truth? What is truth? In other words... I don't think I believe you. I don't think I actually believe in a thing called truth. Truth is up for debate. Truth is what I say it is. Truth is what the king says it is. Truth is what the people agree on what it is. Truth is a matter of debate. Well, not according to Jesus. And if Jesus is who he says he is, the son of God, then we must reckon with his claims of possessing and being the truth. And let me be clear, Jesus' claims are totally unique when it comes to other world religions. He doesn't claim to be merely a possessor of the truth like a prophet, like Muhammad or Buddha or any other religious teacher. He claims to be the truth, the personification of the truth. In other words, he doesn't point towards some other standard of teaching and say, there it is. If you, if you want to know the truth, follow that way. Follow that person. Head in that direction. He says, I am the truth. 
That, friends, is an audacious claim. Now, you might say, well, why should we believe him? Well, I would say, first, examine the evidence. Read what he said. His teaching is profound, and it has shaped the best of human civilizations for over 2,000 years. But the ultimate test, the ultimate authenticator of Jesus' claims is his resurrection from the dead. He declared beforehand that he would be murdered in a public fashion, and he declared beforehand that he would raise himself from the grave. Jesus' resurrection was not a private affair either. He was seen and witnessed by over 500 people. And these witnesses are the ones who were radically changed from a scared, depressed, and scattered people into radically empowered, faithful preachers of the gospel who took the message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection around the world. And how were these men treated? Were they made kings? Were they rewarded with riches of this world? Were, were they made famous in the, in the you know, traditional sense? No. Church history tells us every single one of the apostles, except for John, were brutally killed. John ended his life on the island of Patmos in prison. That's where he wrote the book of Revelation. And more than likely died there in prison. Listen to this. I, I want us to understand the radical change that happened in these disciples. Because we're going to see in a, few, in a few weeks as we're working through John, on the night of his betrayal, they all scatter like mice when you turn the light on, right? They just, they abandon, oh, it must, he must have been wrong, he must have been wrong. And then 40 days later, they get completely changed as people. Where their life is lived in such a sacrificial way that they see they, they fear nothing, they fear nothing after, this, after, the res, after they meet the resurrected Christ, resurrected Christ. Listen to this. Andrew, the brother of Peter, was killed by crucifixion. But he was bound and not nailed to an X-shaped cross in southern Greece. He hung alive for two days preaching the gospel from his cross. Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel, was skinned alive and crucified, head downward in western Asia near Turkey. He was the most traveled of all the disciples after Jesus' death. He preached the gospel in modern-day Iraq and Iran, Ethiopia, Arabia, and India. <clears throat> James the Greater, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, was either beheaded or stabbed to death with a sword by Herod Agrippa around 44 AD near Palestine and not far from where he was a local missionary to the Jews in Judea. His accuser was converted by James's courage and the two of them were beheaded together. James the Lesser, the son of Alphaeus, was the first bishop of Jerusalem. He was martyred in his early 90s by being thrown from a pinnacle of the temple at Jerusalem. Then he was stoned and his head was bashed in with a club. I, I just like that it took more than a, a toss from the top of the temple to kill that 90-year-old man. <laughs> I like this guy. <clears throat> Matthew, or Levi, as he's also called, was killed around 60 AD by being staked and speared to the ground. He preached the gospel in Ethiopia and was killed for questioning the morals of the king. Simon Peter was killed by crucifixion by, at Rome by Nero, and he was crucified around 68 AD, and he was crucified upside down at his request because he did not consider himself worthy to be crucified like Jesus. 
Philip was tortured and impaled by iron hooks in his ankles and hung upside down to die in 54 AD in Egypt. Simon, also called the Zealot, because he was associated with that sect, thought to have ministered mostly in Jordan, was killed by crucifixion in Britain in 74 AD, and then sawn in half. Thomas, also called Didymus, was killed by spear in India. He preached the gospel in Iran and southern India. Mark, or John Mark, was dragged to death. Luke was hanged on an olive tree. Matthias was stoned and beheaded at Jerusalem. The apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, was beheaded by the emperor Nero at Rome. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was thrown some 100 feet off of a wall, and this was done to him repeatedly because he refused to deny his faith in Jesus. He survived the fall, and he was beaten to death with clubs. Jude, also known as Thaddeus, was martyred by beaten. He was beaten to death with a club and then crucified in 72 AD. Now, here's the question I want to ask. What in the world could have changed these men into such courageous and fearless men. These were ordinary guys, fishermen, tax collectors, not much different than any one of us today, and yet they became lion-hearted heroes of our faith who cared more about the truth, more about Jesus, and more about the lost who don't know that truth than they did their own lives. Think about this. Many of these men were family men. They had responsibilities at home, right? And they're willing to proclaim the truth and be witness of the truth, even to the point of their gruesome and brutal death. Well, I think there's three reasons. There's three things that happened to them that made them into this type of men. One, obviously, they had been with Jesus. They took his words to heart. Words that we will read this morning. Jesus says in 16.1, I have told you these things to keep you from falling away. In other words, Jesus was preparing his disciples beforehand for radical conflict. So when it came, they would be ready for it, and they were. Second, they were all eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They saw Jesus in his physical resurrected body. They saw him come back from the dead. And I have this kind of guiding overall life principle that if a guy can call his shot like that, call his death and call his resurrection and then actually does it, I'm probably going to listen to everything he has to say. Just a life principle I kind of walk by. <laughs> Third, these men had been filled with the Holy Spirit. We saw last week and the week before, Jesus promised when he goes to the Father, he's going to send the Holy Spirit who had been with them, but then will be in them, and this Holy Spirit brings a new power with him. The Holy Spirit gave them power that they didn't have before, power to believe and testify to the truth. The same Holy Spirit that Jesus promises to give every single one of us when we believe. Why does he give us that power? Because we need that power to stand for the truth. Because radical conflict is on its way. 
So this morning, as we study the words of Jesus, I too want to prepare you for the radical conflict that he says is on its way to us because we belong to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you today and we want you and your spirit to testify to the truth of your words. We have no confidence in my own ability to persuade, my, only, my own ability to convince people of the truth. You do this, Holy Spirit. This is your work. Would you bear witness to the truth today? Father, I am a sinful man, and so I have all kind of crooked thoughts. I have all kind of imperfect speech, and so I need you to help me. Help me preach your word in truth this morning. Help me be clear, and help me be concise. Would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords? Would you allow your people to hear your word? Would you unclog their ears as Jesus says so often, he that has ears, let him hear. Would they hear this morning? We also wanna pray for the sick among us. We pray for Isla Galliard. We ask that you would continue to heal her body as she fights the cancer and all the other complications that come with that. We also wanna pray for Tona as she's battling sickness. Um, and Lord, we just ask for wisdom to the, for the doctors and perseverance in the midst of an incredibly trying time. We thank you for all the ways that you've already answered our prayers and the many answered prayers that we had this week of people healed and um, good news from doctor's reports. We, we just wanna give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory for that, for you are the God that heals us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to chapter 15, verse 18. Um, I told the, the team as we were praying before, I am sure that this was one of the first verses that you memorized as a child. Um, I'm sure Sunday, this is the favorite verse of all Sunday school teachers. Uh, Christian bookstores are just filled with t-shirts with this verse on shirts and backpacks and all the things, the Bible covers. I'm sure all of us love this Bible verse this morning, right? All of us, this is just our favorite verse. Here's what Jesus says in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, I don't know if there is a more difficult teaching from Jesus than this one right here. This is another reason why I believe Jesus is the capital T truth. He doesn't tell us what we want to hear. He tells us the truth. If you follow Jesus, prepare to be hated for it. Now, I think this teaching directly from the mouth of Jesus flies in the face of what most people think Christianity is all about. Most people, if you ask them, what is Christianity all about? They say something to the effect of people should be nice to one another. Christianity is about being nice. Love one another, love your enemies, don't judge, just be nice. Can I just state the obvious fact? Very few people are hated for being nice. Very few people get crucified for being Mr. Rogers, okay? <laughs> Young people, you don't know what I'm talking about, sorry. <laughs> See, this is one of the things that goes so wrong about the he gets us ads that played during the Super Bowl. See, Jesus didn't have a traveling foot washing ministry. 
right? The only unrepentant person Jesus ever washed the feet of was Judas, and that did not result in his conversion. I had a funny, funny story this week. A friend of mine was at a 13-year-old uh, flag football league, and he was listening to the, the kids, and one of the kids said, hey, did you see that Super Bowl ad about Jesus washing feet? Jesus was really into feet. <laughs> I just laughed. I was like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, big in defeat. Yeah, big in defeat. See, Christianity is about far more than being nice or washing feet. Jesus wasn't crucified for washing people's feet. He was crucified because he made a universal truth claim that people didn't like. He said things like that God made them male and female. Do people like that today? No. We would crucify him just like they did in the first century. Jesus is the truth. And truth by its very nature separates truth from lies. Truth from fiction. Truth from falsehood. And Jesus shows us here that human nature hates that truth and therefore hates Jesus. Listen, it's likely that if you are in a lot of debt, you might hate your creditor. If you get judged and sentenced to life in prison for committing a crime, you might hate the judge. If you fail a test in school, you might hate your teacher. But what you are really getting at in each of those scenarios is a hatred of the truth. You hate a standard that you have broken and you are being judged by. Jesus says he is that standard and that is why the world hates him. In one sense, Jesus would have been the worst older brother to have. Couldn't blame anything on him. It was always your fault. You knew it. He's perfect. Like what? It's always my fault, right? Now what does Jesus mean when he says here, look at verse two, or verse 19. If you were of the world, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. World, 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 world. What does Jesus here mean by world? Well, the word there is cosmos. And like this is John's uh, normal way of referring in the gospel of John to the created moral order that's in active rebellion against God. So he's not just talking about the planet. He's talking about the way of living that's against the standard of truth, that's against God. It's a moral order and active rebellion against God. See, since all mankind has fallen into sin and we are born sinful, we as a human race are set against God. We were made good and perfect and yet Adam and Eve fell in sin and that sin has been passed down to all of us. And so what do we do? We're born into this world resisting the truth. Enemies of the truth. 
Romans 1.18 says that we try to suppress the truth. What does that mean? Think of it like this. We try to hold the truth down like a beach ball underwater. And you know that takes incredible effort. You could do it for a little while, but eventually you let go and the thing hits you in the chin and rattles your teeth, right? That's reality. That's capital T truth. You can live like it doesn't exist, but reality wins 100% of the time. So Jesus says, the world hates him. And the world hate, will hate his disciples. Now this brings up a good question. Jesus isn't from the world, meaning he came from heaven. He is the truth that came into our world from the outside. So we understand why the world would hate him. But why is Jesus saying that his followers will also be hated. Well, look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world will love you at its own. But because you're not of the world, but look, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So here's the picture. They were in the world. The disciples were born into the world. They were born into sin. They were just like everybody else. They were sinful dudes just doing their own thing, living their own life by whatever standard of the truth that they wanted to follow. But as people of the world, Jesus chose them out of the world. In other words, he went and he handpicked them and then the Holy Spirit came into them or came upon them at the time. They were converted to Christ. Jesus called it being born again. And when they're born again, they're born into a different world. They're born into a spiritual kingdom. They're born into the church, we would say today. Now, they're, they're, they're no longer of the world, they're now children of God. They have been born again and brought into Jesus' eternal kingdom. So to tie the sermon to the text from last week, they have been grafted into the vine. And now they are one with Christ. So if people hate the vine, they'll hate the branches. If people hate Jesus, the truth, they will hate Christians because we are one with Jesus and we testify to the truth. Now, can I just say, this might be your worst nightmare. If I was creating a religion and wanted to get as many followers to kind of take over the world, I would not make this one of my core teachings. Who wants to be hated? Who wants to be mistreated? Who wants to be hated by the world? In a real sense, that means by our neighbors, by our family members, by our friends. Could be by our government, could be on and on. Who wants to be hated? Now listen, this is where much of what has been called the missional church movement goes astray. We want, in the missional church movement, they wanted to bring the core teachings of Jesus down to kind of like the everyday level. And what they wanted to do is all of the pieces of the Bible that our modern culture likes and finds agreeable, things like intimate community, things like, you know, worshipful experience. We wanted to bring those things down. And here, here's, the, here's the issue. 
We wanted to tell the world all of the good things that they would like about Christianity. That's, that's, what the, that's what it's doing. It's bringing all the good stuff that you would like. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can know God in a personal way. You can have an intimate community in a lonely generation, in a broken, diverse generation. There's diversity in the church that you can't get outside of the church. All of these good things that scripture teaches, but what the missional church movement missed was they stayed away from all of Jesus' hard teachings. Right? That he gets us at, it's not totally wrong. Yeah, Jesus dies for sinners. Jesus pursues the lost. Jesus spent time with prostitutes. Jesus spent time with drunkards enough that he was, he was they said that he was a, a friend of sinners and he was a drunkard. Right? He, he never got drunk, but that's what they said about him. But Jesus was also capital T truth that when you encountered him, no one walked away comfortable in their sin. They were challenged. When he met the promiscuous woman, he, when, she let, when, he, when she was leaving, he said, go and sin no more. So what the missional church movement does is it stays away from texts like this, and it, this is what it does in our head. We think if we bring Christianity down, the world will like us. Hear that. If we bring Christianity down and get rid of a few texts, our friends will like us. Our neighbors will like us. People will come rushing into the church to worship Jesus. Jesus didn't edit himself. We don't need to edit Jesus. And then the missional church movement fills its pews with half-hearted Christians. And then preachers have to edit themselves and can't preach the unadulterated word of God because they know if they do, half their church might leave. And many preachers are afraid if half their churches leave, I, they can't afford my salary. So I don't want to preach myself out of a job. And so what happens? They edit Jesus. And ultimately they begin to preach a false gospel. A false message of Christianity. See, most of us really want to be liked. We want to be loved. We don't want to be hated. And this is why it's so important for us to know this and understand it. Listen, your greatest temptation, your greatest temptation might be right here. You might so want to be loved and liked by the world by people who don't know and love Jesus, that you risk falling away from him. James, the brother of Jesus, has a name for this. He calls it spiritual adultery. See, God loves us in and through Jesus, and the Holy Spirit pours that love into our hearts. And yet we are tempted to love the world more than we love him. And listen, when I'm saying world, I don't want you to hear love sin. That's not what he's talking about here. It's love people, love people who don't know Jesus, loving them and wanting to be loved by them more than you love Christ and, and, and you're securing his love for you. This is how James, the brother of Jesus, says it in James 4.4. 4. You adulterous people, do you know that friendship with the world 
is enmity with God. Therever, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now this often brings up an interesting question. Well, if I can't love the world, what about John 3.16? For God so loved the world. Didn't Jesus love the world? Well, yes. But remember what Jesus has been teaching us consistently over the last few weeks. Love and truth are inseparable. Love and his commandments are inseparable. Jesus loved the world with a perfect love that testified perfectly to the truth. He had a sacrificial love, a truth-telling love. But look at his results. He was not loved in return. And that will be true for us if we're faithful to Jesus. Our calling is to love as he has loved us. And our truth-telling love will often be returned back to us as rejection and hatred. This is why our desire to be loved by the world is so dangerous. If we desperately need to be loved by people, we don't know if we definitely if we de if we desperately need to be loved by Jesus who, or by people who don't know Jesus, we will fail to love them the way Jesus loved them. We won't say things or do things like Jesus did because we know they will reject us and hate us. We know, we self-edit all the time. Like, you know, when you first brought your spouse or soon-to-be spouse around your mom and dad, you were like, just don't bring up Whatever. Every parent's got their thing. You know, it could be politics, could be whatever. Just don't bring it up, right? What are you doing? You're self-editing because you know if you bring something up, you're going to get blowback. You're going to get anxiety. You're going to get angry. You're going to get rejection. And because we're human beings, all of us struggle with this. And it's, it's, it was a dangerous temptation in Jesus' day, but I think it's even more dangerous today because our culture believes that all truth is relative. And they believe, if you love me, you will approve of the things I do. If you love me, you won't judge me. If you love me, you won't make me feel bad. If you love me, you won't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. Well, that is not love. Jesus goes on, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The cross tells us something. The cross shows us how the world reacts to the standard of truth being among them. We want to get rid of it to make ourselves feel better about our own sin. Jesus says, they crucified me, they might crucify you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Now, a few disciples keep his word. 
majority of the people, remember, Jesus was preaching to masses of people, all kinds of people. They loved Jesus when he was feeding the poor. They loved him when he was feeding the poor. They loved him when he's healing people. They loved him when he's doing good social work, right? They loved him when he was doing that. And then when he's speaking truth, only a few kept his word. 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So they do these things because they don't know God. Why do they hate you? Because they don't know God. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sins, speaking of this specific sin, rejecting God, because they've rejected him face to face, the son of God. But now they have no excuse for their sin, right? Why would, I guess it'd be so much easier to believe in God if he just came down and became a man. Well, he did that once, and we crucified him. Verse 23, whoever hates me, hates my father also. They hate the son because they hate the father. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now that they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be filled. They hated me without a cause. This is a psalm. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to the fa- send to you. I, actually, before I go there, let's go to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10 through 17. Scripture says this. You have, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. So he's writing here to the church and he's saying, you're doing good. You followed my teaching. You've followed my conduct. You followed my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. He's looking at the church. He's like, you're doing good. You're doing a lot of good stuff. Verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Life first. I know I'm doing everything right because everybody hates me. Right? We will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted. Here's the idea. As you live differently, people hate that. Your life testifies to the truth of God. If you've got an intact family, if you've got an intact marriage, if you have a sense of biblical morality, your very life will judge people. And you will be persecuted for it. Verse 13. Actually, let's just read 12 again and then go right into 13. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Godly people will get persecution because evil people 
go from bad to worse. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, we need all of the Bible. We need all of scripture, not just the parts of Jesus that we like. Every bit of it especially what we're reading today. Back to our text, verse 26. So, bad news, bad news, right? Bad news. They hated Jesus, they're gonna hate us. We've probably felt this at some measure in our life. And as our culture is becoming less and less Christianized, right, more of our haters are going to be more public, more vocal, have more power, have more influence, and they're going to press in. And we're going to experience persecution unless the Lord sends a massive revival. Okay? That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Because if you're sitting here like me and thinking, if they come to my door tomorrow and they pull me out and want to crucify me, I don't know if I can handle that. Like, I... How much persecution is too? I don't know if I'm strong enough. I don't know if I have the ability to be like these men of God of old. I don't know if I have that strength. Well, this is why Jesus, right in the mix, right in the middle of this difficult passage, he says this in verse 26. But when the helper comes, remember the helper, the comforter, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who has strength that we don't have. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Whom I will send to you from the Father. Look, the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. I can't remember who said it, but it was uh, one of the early reformers, or maybe it was right before the reformers, who they were about to be burned at the stake for translating the scriptures into the English language. And he looked across at the other guy that was with him that they're about to be burned alive at the stake, and he said, play the man this day. He said, play the man. They're about to light a fire they're about a light of fire in England that nothing else is going to stop. Light of fire in England? He was talking about himself. They're going to burn us alive and it's going to start a revival in, in the city. And that's exactly what it did in the, in the world. Eventually brought about the whole Reformation. Why? Because he had the Holy Spirit in him. So in the moment of his temptation and the moment of his greatest fear, he could look across and say, play the man, boy. Play the man. Yeah, we're about, to, we're about to be burned up and God's gonna use it for his glory. He will, so the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Remember, we've already talked about this two weeks ago. He proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. So what does the spirit do? Bears witness to the truth. Who is the truth? Jesus. The Holy Spirit enables us to testify to Jesus, to hold the truth about Jesus to not give in to the pressure to cave when persecution and hatred comes. 27, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. See, the Holy Spirit bears witness and we as disciples are meant to be spirit-filled witnesses to the culture. There is a truth. His name is Jesus. And in the day of our trial, May we lean on the Holy Spirit and stand firm under it. Chapter 16, verses one through four. 
I have said all these things, look, to keep you from falling away. I said the hard thing because you needed to hear the hard thing. This is truth. They will put you out of the synagogues. That's exactly what happened after Jesus was crucified. They no longer could preach in the synagogues. If you watch the apostle Paul, Paul, he goes and preaches in synagogues and he starts a riot. Nearly every town he goes to, he starts a riot. I was talking to one of, one of the scholars that I was reading this week on these passages. He said, everywhere Paul went, he caused a riot. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. <laughs> Paul's message, he preached the truth. He preached the grace of God. He preached the love of God. And yet he was rejected and hated and persecuted for it. We should expect the same. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. This is what Saul did to the early church. Saul was a Jewish leader. He was not a convert after, at the resurrection of Christ. And so he was holding the cloaks of men who were killing Christians because he thought Christians was a sect or a, you know, a cult. And so it should be stamped out and destroyed. And so he was in honor and his service to God, he was killing Christians. And then the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ had to show up and literally knock him off his horse and say, stop persecuting me. And that's how he got converted. And they will do these things, verse three, because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I have told them to you. John never forgets this teaching and he goes on to write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and in 1st John chapter 3, verse 11, he says this. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. All the way back to Cain and Abel, right? Abel brought his sacrifice to God and God accepted it because it was his best, right? That's what the scripture tells us. And Cain brought an unacceptable offering to God and God rejected it. So Abel did what was right. Abel was the good brother and Cain was the wicked, evil brother. And what? What was the reaction here? Cain did not look at Abel and go, oh, my bad, I messed up. I, I guess I should have done something a little better. I'll go back and check my heart. I'll confess my sins. No, he hated his brother. He envied his brother and he killed his brother. So from that point, John says this. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Listen. What can overcome my love for the world? But Jesus also called this the fear of man. I'm afraid of what people would say about me. I'm afraid of what people would think of me. That I want to be loved 
more than I want to actually love? What has the power to overcome my love to be loved by the world? Only a greater, far surpassing, all encompassing love. The love of God seen in his giving his son for us to live the perfect life that none of us live and to die the death that we deserve for our many sins. All the death that we deserve for our spiritual adultery against God. I love to be loved by the world more than I love you. See, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us while we were yet sinners. When that love comes into our life, that love is meant to overpower and reorient all other loves. Do I still want to be loved by the world, want to be accepted, want to be liked? Of course I do. But when I'm feeling the battle, who wins? Does the Holy Spirit, and of course it's every day, right? Sometimes the Holy Spirit wins, sometimes my flesh and the world wins. Only an all-encompassing, far-surpassing, perfect love in Christ can overcome and conquer our hearts that we love the Father, we love the Son, we love the Holy Spirit more than we love the praise of other people. And James goes on to say, that love should cause us to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. What does that mean? That we are to love each other with a Christ-like, truth-telling, self-sacrificial love. The love of God towards us and in us propels us to lay our lives down for each other. Does that mean physically? Maybe someday we'll have to do that physically, but it means our preferences. It means our energy. It means our time. It means our money. It means our focus, our attention. We lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, this isn't simply like loving affection for each other. Though it does include that. This is the rubber meets the road type of love. Love in action, love in service. James says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, he do how does God's love abide in him? So one way we know that God's love abides in us is if our worldly goods, time, talent, treasure, is flowing to other brothers and sisters in Christ. That we're serving other brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just feeling warm fuzzies and affection toward them. Little children, he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let me apply this text to a very real situation that we're facing as a church. Scott's already mentioned it this morning that God has blessed us in mighty ways over the past 12 years and our church has grown We've got a building here. We've got hundreds of people, hundreds of kids. We've got more opportunities to love people than we have ever had before. And yet that growth brings challenges with it. This is, we're in the thick of sick season. Like half my family's at home sick. I know there's, we got all kinds of people sick. And yet we're still busting at the seams. And Easter's coming. The most, the highest attendance Sunday in any, year, in any Sunday of the year. And yet we, many of us, myself included, we're comfortable in here. 
I like this, right? I like one gathering. I like seeing everybody at one time. I like how it sounds when we worship. I, I, I like all of those different things. And yet, what is God asking us to do? How are we going to love the people that we have in this room well and love those that God's bringing to us? Well, we've, we've got to make a sacrifice. We've got to love in service, not just in word. Love in deed. We need to make room for people. We need to, I wish I had the power of Jesus and could just turn houses into parking lot out there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know, 100 more spots. Right? But I don't. So what do we have to do? We have to lay down our preferences, lay down our wants and our desires, our comfort for the mission of Jesus to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And with all these kids that we've got at our church, every time we baptize one of these precious children or that we dedicate one of, you know, dedicate parents, that we, I have everybody in this room stand up and we make a covenant with those parents, a commitment as a church, individually and corporately, to help parents disciple their kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Well, we want to do that, not just in talk. I would encourage you, don't say that if it's a lie. When we make that commitment to people, if you have no plan to disciple their kids, if you have no plan to help those parents, don't say it. Don't make a rash vow to the Lord. But we really mean it. We want to help them disciple their kids. And one of the best ways to do that is by those parents getting involved in our kids' ministry. Why? Because you've got to learn how to teach the Bible to your kids. How do you do that? Right? Yeah, you could maybe YouTube it, but the better way to do it is to go downstairs and learn how to be a teacher. Learn how to disciple kids. And then you can disciple your own kids. And then also all of us going down there and helping disciple those parents as they sit in here, you know, five out of six weeks. This is one of the ways that we make a commitment to loving our brothers and sisters and discipling them and their kids. And so, we st you know, in order to make this happen, we still need 25 more volunteers in our kids' ministry. So if you're not serving our, in our kids' ministry, what are you waiting for? Get involved. Dad, I'm speaking to you. You, you feel like out of, out of depths around the dinner table with the Bible open? Go to kids' ministry, learn some Bible stories, learn how to handle the word of God. Go be a part of the catechism team with Eric and John. Learn the Bible, learn the scriptures. We literally, kids are the hardest people in the world to teach. I can say something real complex about the Trinity to you and you just kind of, kids are like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> what do you mean he's three and one? And you're like, it's three and one, let's move on. Right? No, kids will challenge you. So, as I close this sermon this morning, listen, this is a tough text. This goes against our nature. This goes against our flesh. And yet Jesus says, not just that, he, he does say in other places, they will know you by your love for one another. But here he's also saying, and they will know you by the hatred from the world. Our worldview needs to have both of those things held together in tension. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for being truth. We need someone to lead us out of this mess that we're in, this cultural confusion, this brokenness. And Jesus, we know that you are our standard bearer, that you are our captain 
that you are the one that is the truth. And so we do not want to betray you. We do not want to shrink away from your hard teaching. We want to lean into it. We want you to prepare us for the conflict that is in our lives now and prepare us for the conflict that's on its way because we are people of the truth. We are people of Christ. Would you strengthen us? Would you help us walk that tension, that tightrope that we love the world, but we love the world in the way that Jesus loves the world with truth and affection together, with truth and action together. Of course, we can't do this perfectly, and so we need your blood and your grace and your spirit. We need all of them. And thankfully, you've given us all of them. And we're reminded this morning in our meal that you have provided us everything we need for life and godliness. And so we eat this meal this morning and we ask that the Holy Spirit, through the elements, would feed our souls. You would nourish us, strengthen us, prepare us for the conflict in the days ahead. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this bread, which we confess provides us with the body of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask you to enable us to eat of it in faith and be made more fully members of his heavenly body through Christ our Lord. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this wine, which we confess provides us with the blood of your Son, our Savior. We ask you to enable us to drink of it in faith and to be conformed more and more to the image of his death through Christ our Lord. Would you do this, Jesus, for your glory and our great joy. In your powerful name we pray, amen and amen.